Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. If you're a new viewer, my name is Jay, and I'm an investor probably just like you. I've got three young kids. I run two small businesses. I'm just trying to find the best home for my cash, probably just like you. Now, my guest today is part of a special series we are doing right here on the channel as we look for the highest quality exposure in the gold sector. My guest is Cam Curry. He's a senior investment advisor at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management and the leader of his own firm, Curry Metals and Mining. Now today, we get into the biggest geopolitical factors fueling the gold market right now. What is incentivizing central banks to be buying gold at a higher rate than we've seen in over 50 years? I always learn tons whenever I speak with Cam, and I'm super thankful for this interview. I know that you're gonna enjoy it. Now, as always, if you enjoy my content right beneath this video, there's a link where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I publish every Sunday and I love writing it. I would love to have you join the team. Now here is Cam Curry, enjoy. I'm looking forward to chatting with you again and kind of picking things up from where we left off last time we spoke, which was the beginning of 2023. And at that point in time, major headlines in the gold market were mainly focused on the record central bank gold buying in Q4 of 2022. A lot of questions about why, a lot of speculation that it was directly tied to the seizure of um, Russian US dollars. And I think that scenario has only continued to mature, right? And probably what's well, added to my conviction in what's occurring. I'd love to, to get your thoughts on this. So we're sitting here now, it's June, right? That story's matured. The central bank gold buying hasn't slowed down. It's actually sped up. If you look at Q1 2023 versus Q1 2022, central bank buying is up over 176% quarter over quarter. What are you seeing right now in the gold sector, Cam, relating to that narrative and what's catching your attention? What I'm seeing in the, in the gold market is one thing. What I'm seeing in the narrative is completely different. Interesting. Okay. And uh, we did have gold above 2000 here about a month ago, and we did start hearing some narrative in the media. You know, Bristol was on CNBC, Sean um, Boyd from Indigo was on CNBC. You had people talking about, you know, what was happening in the gold market. And I had a big trading group out of uh, New York called me up and they just recognized it. And yet they trade all these different commodity spaces. So it was just trying to get some attention. But then gold, you know, fell off with the thought of interest rates going up again in the States and things quilling after the, uh, the banking issues resolved themselves, which they really haven't yet. Yeah. I and want to so, talk about that too. Yeah. So, which is, again, it's, it, we'll get into the narrative of that in a second. So now it's gotten quiet again, but through this whole process, the equities, never really fully reacted to the fact that gold was trading at 2000. Back in 2012, when gold was at 2000, compared to now, if you look at ETF holdings and gold ETF equity holdings, they're down 80% from where they were in 2012. So the interest in North American ETFs, and the gold ETFs and the gold equities is non-existent, and yet gold traded to all-time highs. No one's paying attention, because again, as I say to people, the narrative still is US equity markets. Yeah. You know, the NVIDIA's of the world and all these other sectors and, you know, buying off the bounce. People are still playing in that arena and no one's paying attention to what's going on in our space. Now, do you think that's just a consequence of investors being trained for 10, 12 years that uh, those U.S. equities were the safe bets 
they do one thing, they go up, occasionally they correct a little bit and then they go up again. And that's a long, that's a really long period of time. I mean, if you've been in the market, you know, a decade, that's all you've known, right? And it takes, that's a lot of inertia, right? To redirect into something new. And I could say there's no shortage of reasons for investors to think differently right now, but that's easy to say, you know, it takes longer for that to actually occur. What do you think's delaying that shift in understanding for investors to start looking at hard assets, start looking at precious metals and the equities that, that underpin those? Well, again, there's a couple of things there. The narrative is still on U.S. equities, right? And they've been playing that game. I mean, look what happened two years ago with the Robin Hoods and, you know, the, the cornering of the Bed Bath & Beyonds and these stocks, the AMC and that. They all gambled. Right. And so independent brokerage firm in the United States, which is the largest sophisticated retail uh, brokerage firm in the States, the number one, I saw this interview a month ago, the number one trading instrument right now is buying options on ETFs on a daily basis. So what's been cultivated in the U.S. investors' mindset is the trading mentality, the gambling mentality. And so they're still playing in that gambling mentality, despite the severe losses in a lot of the equities, they're still playing in the gambling mentality of a number of these stocks because they can trade these things up and they move up 10%. Right. Look what happens to Coinbase, you can jump 10%. Today it was down 5%. So they can buy the ETFs and these things, they still gamble in it. It doesn't matter where the price is, the fact that the stocks are down 80%, they're still playing in that arena. And so they, they haven't been drawn into why they should be coming into the precious metal equities yet. That makes sense? Yeah. It's a remarkably complex trade to be trading options on ETFs. Oh. I mean, I kind of, I live and breathe in the, in the market. It's not how I invest. I mean, I'm not a trader. Let's, let's follow that thread actually, because I'm not a trader. I'm a long-term value investor. My audience is not traders. They're long-term value investors. And so I always encourage my audience and simultaneously myself to not lose sleep over the short-term volatility if you have conviction in the bigger picture trend. And so let's talk about that for a little bit. I'm expecting that if we saw record central bank gold buying in Q4 of 2022, if we saw record central bank gold buying in Q1 of 2023 relative to Q1s of the past, that whatever's inspiring those acquisitions has not decreased. The chaos, the uncertainty, the erosion of trust in US dollar, that's not gone anywhere. It's amplified, has it not? And so could we not expect a response to amplify as well? Totally. And I, I say this to my clients, it's like a, a big freighter going in one direction. We're just in the shift of that freighter direction. Okay. And so we're macro players as well. And the micro noise right now is what's killing the long-term vision of, of gold and gold equities because people get, you know, gold gets slapped down $100 in the last month. Right. And all of a sudden people go, oh, and they pull back again because they're just looking short-term. The shift of the freighter hasn't taken complete turn to the new direction. And that's where we are right now. I mean, it, the whole trend is, is, is shifting. The autocracies versus democracies, the BRICS, for example, you know, it's, that's not, that, that direction is going to continue for a long period of time. And that central bank di um, gold demand out of the Eastern central banks is going to continue. It's, it's far from over because the U.S. dollar is being diversified out of into other reserve currencies. And again, a lot of people don't know this in North America, but the three largest reserve currencies in the world are the U.S. dollar, euro, and gold. And gold. And you say that to an American, they go, wow. I wouldn't know gold was a reserve currency because they don't think of it that way. Mm. So let's stick with the BRICS then. 
I believe the five foreign ministers of the founding BRICS nations right now have um, agreed to decide in August whether or not they'll be admitting new members. And something like 19 countries have raised their hand. Uh, apparently, 12 have submitted formal applications. I- I'm not super clear on what a formal, formal application entails. Regardless, there's tons of expressions of interest. And countries like Saudi Arabia are being courted right, to join the BRICS. Whether or not they do, I don't know. Point is, the conversation's occurring. And the interest is there. Would you expect, therefore, the BRICS to expand and become like the, the it's counterbalance? Already ex- it's already expanded. It it's, just hasn't been formally announced. Okay. Interesting. You know, again, going back to, like, you know, one of the pillars of the petrodollar was Saudi Arabia's arrangement to transact oil in U.S. dollars. Yes. Well, now they're tra- transacting oil also in the Chinese renminbi. Okay, so they already, already made that shift. Yeah. And I don't you know if you saw this past weekend, but the naval alliance between Iran, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, United Emirates, and they're even saying um, India and Pakistan is part of it. That just came out this past weekend. No, again, no coverage on U.S. Uh, U.S. media. But if you go to Reuters and, and some of the news services, you, know, you look at that coalition kind of going again. That's part of their whole brick alignment, the autocracy alignment. Mm. So, how does that shift the power landscape? You know, if you if the brick starts collecting more nations, and it seems like they're really focusing on commodity producers and exporters, which would be smart, right? It's in line with the new development banks' plans, the former BRICS bank plans to develop some kind of a competitive currency that would be underpinned by either gold or a basket of commodities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but how does this shift the U.S. influence? If there's a counterweight that is as attractive, if not more so, for a lot of countries than you know, the UN, for example. Well, it's already been happening. For the last 20 years, if you look at the US dollar transaction on a global scale, it's gone from like 70% down to 52%. Okay. okay, so as the emerging markets, which a lot of BRIC nations continue to evolve, their growth of GDP is taking place and their transactions are taking place in a greater number and they're choosing to use the dollar less and less. And again, if you look at the supremacy between the US and China, okay, and you look at US as G7, BRIC, BRIC is really kind of led by China. Yeah. And so you have the autocracies versus democracies. And so the autocracies are aligning themselves. And they, in a lot of, a lot of ways, they're the ones that are getting greater control of, of resources in the world too, if you look at those countries and the alignments that are taking place. Mm-hmm. And that's very, very key on precious metals, base metals, and the alignments of commodities in the world. Because if you don't have commodities, how do you grow your economy, right? So that's a, that's a, that's a, there's a huge growth component to that, that the Western world really isn't paying attention to. Try to get a permanent copper asset in the United States right now. Yeah. They want to go green, but they don't, they don't want to do it in their own backyard. Right. Canada, look what's going on here. We had all the opportunity to do LNG, but we didn't, right? Yes. So, but yeah, no, I, so if you look at the alignment of what their, their, their trading relations are in the BRICS and, their movement into precious metals out of U.S. dollars. It's telling us a direction. We don't know how, like you said, how the next reserve currency comes about and what the backing is going to be. But, you know, we fully believe there's going to be some sort of positioning of gold in that basket. Right. And the central banks, Eastern Central Banks are telling you that. Last year, 1,700 tons were bought. And the Western world doesn't, isn't really paying attention to that. Yeah, they are voting with their wallets yes. and their bank accounts. Yeah. And the changes in reserves are material. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Iraq last week bought, uh, 2.5 tons of gold on Thursday in one day, which is a net increase of 2% in their gold reserves. 
But since last June, they've increased their gold holdings by 35%. And we're seeing numbers like that, like 35% in the last 12 months, 18 months, consistently through those BRICS or BRICS-friendly nations. So it is a material shift in their their reserves. And typically, gold is where you go when things are shifting from one thing to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And it's increasingly valuable if you don't know what that next thing is, because it's like the... Well, it's the, it's the, um, non-counterparty lifeboat, right? Where you can go and wait things out. Um, on that note, just want to point out, if you look at the, um, Swiss pension fund, okay. they've been buyers of gold and that's one of the biggest vaults in the world. Singapore, uh, they increased gold reserves by 30%. That's the second largest vault in the world. Yes. And then you have the bank of England, right? So you have the three biggest vaults and you look at two of the three institutions that understand what's going on in those vaults. They're big buyers. So what does that tell you too? You know, I don't know what it tells me, but it makes me ask questions. Like Singapore is a big surprise because that's not a BRICS friendly nation, that's right? right? It, it sorry, aligns with the West. Yet they were the number one buyer in Q1 of 2023 of physical gold. What does that tell you? Like, what do you, what do you get from that? Well, they're observing. They're seeing what's going on. Okay. You know, if, if you own a vault and you see movements in the vault and you see movements that suggest that the, the movements are going to continue in the same direction, what do you do? You go long. Right. Makes sense. So this is maybe like the highest level of, uh, of the supply and demand story in the gold sector. I mean, we're talking thousands of tons of gold acquisitions. Have you seen that from your seat? Because I know you talk to money managers all over the world, uh, generalist funds. You've got an amazing network in capital allocation. Have you seen this sentiment trickle down to those institutions yet? No, that was a fast no. No. Well, we just had our Canacordinity Mining Conference down in Palm Springs. Okay. And I was on a panel with um, three very recognized uh, institutions, and they're getting no inflows. And uh, it's, it's, if anything, they're getting redemptions because people are a little bit frustrated the gold pulled back. And there's, you know, all the reasons for, in the world for the gold equities to be doing well has been there, but the equities haven't performed relative to where gold price is. Sure. So then people get frustrated. And uh, so it has not trickled down at all. Again, I think the narrative is, is, you know, I think last time we spoke, I talked about the effect of narrative. Yeah. And narrative is such a driving force in money flows because narrative drives ETFs and ETFs drive algos. And uh, that's 85% of the volume in the marketplace these days. And we just don't have that attention towards our sector yet. Hmm. What's missing in the narrative front right now in the gold sector? It's a multifaceted question because there's multiple things that are missing. I mean, we just went through a debt ceiling, um, you know, potential risk, right? Right. And, but now it's resolved. Now we push it out once again. And yet yeah. when you talk to people like Jerome Powell or John Yellen, they say we're on, on an unsustainable path when it comes to our deficits, but we pushed it out. So we're fine. So the market goes back to things. Yeah. Uh, Silicon Valley, first, first Republic. You know, regional bank uh, runs, the risks of lending practices by regional banks to commercial real estate and small businesses still exists, but it's been stripped from the meeting. You know, we talked, it was talked about a month ago. How many people are now are talking about that? Right. So the narrative is, you know, everything's fine. The narrative is that everything's yeah. fine. And again, yeah. I'm not trying to be negative towards what's going on there, but there's so many elements that are not being recognized that are, that are cracks in a, in a risk uh, situation in U.S. equity markets and U.S. dollar. Right. And so I think you need a, a narrative to recognize that U.S. dollar is going to continue to go down. 
Right. And that's one of the reasons why you know have to have a gold as an asset class. Well, let's let's focus on those banks for a second because you know Silicon Valley, Signature Bank, First Republic Bank, it's three banks so far this this year. But I believe the assets under management of those three banks are larger than all of the 40 banks that failed during 2008. So you may say, oh, it's just three banks. It's like, well, look at, well, look at the bigger picture here. Look at the value destruction, right? Look at the risk of, of wealth destruction. Is that story over, Cam? And if not, where are the fractures? Where are the vulnerable points? Well, I think the bigger picture right now is the fact that, you know, you've got 10 companies now making up 32% of the value of the S&P 500. Okay. And if you take out um, the 10 top big elephant companies in the United States, the stock market's flat year over year. Yet the indexes are suggest suggesting, you know, that, that we're, you know, breaking out once again. So I think the, the tremor has been felt in, in the U.S. banking system. Uh, but the, I think the lending practices of the banks are tightening up. I think the consumer is getting more and more tight. They keep on talking about the strong consumer, but with higher interest rates and inflation biting into the consumption function, you know, the other day, Dollar Tree, you know, which is, uh, you know, for lower income uh, consumers, stock was down 18%, lower sales, right? Mm -hmm. So you're starting to see the effects of interest rates. Interest rates going up, what? The biggest percentage change in history in the last 14 months, but it takes time for it to work through the system. So I think this next quarter, you're going to start seeing the unemployment levels um, moving up. I think you start seeing the effect on the economy. And as that unfolds, I, then, I think then people will start looking at, okay, maybe things aren't as rosy. Because everyone thinks, you know, that we're just going to, that was a speed bump and move forward. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And I don't know how you get investors out of that, out of that cycle of thinking, because we are captivated by headlines. Mm -hmm. Media does a very good job at captivating us with headlines and driving uh, and driving a narrative, especially, and right now that narrative seems to be, don't worry, everything's fine, right? Which would be an incredibly intelligent narrative to push forward if everything wasn't fine, right? And if you looked at the behavior of, uh, say, opposing nations, BRICS-friendly nations, whatever, they've identified things are not fine in the West, we're gonna hedge our bets elsewhere, right? So at home in the West, what do you do? You, you keep that story locked tight, right? You pump the everything is fine narrative because you got to keep, you got to keep, I guess, uh, cohesion as best you can. I was chatting with Randy Smallwood, as you know, and he said his mission at the World Gold Council is to be an advocate for gold. And I said, it sounds to me like the real mission is for people to be an advocate for themselves. I mean, that's kind of the role gold plays. It, it contributes to accountability, to sovereignty, to personal responsibility. Um, and to standing up on your own, right? Um, you know, that's the narrative that's missing as far as I can tell is there's this belief that everything will be taken care of and things might go south for a day or two, but someone will swoop in and save the day. How would you recommend, therefore, that an investor begins to investigate the gold sector? They've heard commentary like from yourself, maybe from my channel. They've heard people like Randy Smallwood speak and they're thinking, okay, I need to start adding exposure to the gold sector. How do I begin this journey and where do I look first? Well, First of all, there's very few investors actually looking still, right? And I think the big thing, let me just step back for a second and just talk about why I have the, the belief we are going to recession and why there are a lot of risks out in the system still. You had 10 years of free money around the world. And so you had asset prices inflate. Uh, and now the cost of money has gone up exponentially in a very short period of time. And so you have these asset prices that got inflated from free money, mispriced assets. 
And the, the unintended consequences of that, I think, are just starting to come through. Case in point, some of these examples we were just using. And I think one of the reasons why I'm you know, taking interviews and doing um, um, events like this is I'm trying to educate people about the risks in the system because so many people don't recognize the risks of the asset bubbles that have been created. And they're perpetually going along the same pathway without worrying about the risks of that. So you have to take some insurance policy positions. You know, you look at, you know, you talk, you talk to Americans, the US dollar, right? I mean, it's the reserve currency of the world, you know, second to none, but it also carries a lot of debt obligations, got $32 trillion in debt. Then you also have pension funds, you have Medicare, all that. There's so, so many elements of value or risk associated with that US dollar. And what you're seeing now is a diversification out of that. And these are the emerging markets, the new growth engines of the world. And they're looking at transacting outside US dollars. And why are they doing that? You know, is it a confidence issue? I mean, that's part of it. And so if you're losing or you think there's a confidence risk in your US dollar assets, then what are you doing to position yourself uh, uh, with a protective position? Mm-hmm. Are you gonna buy the Euro? Are you gonna buy the Canadian dollar, right. the yen? You know, and this is one of the simple things about gold that people don't really fully understand. It's the only currency in the world that has no political attachment, no debt obligation, and no printing press. Mm-hmm. And so if you were to look down the world today and look at a basket of currencies, would that appeal to you given the landscape we're in today? Of course. Yeah. But it's not getting any, any thought in, in the in mainstream media or in the financial world. Right. And I feel like we just haven't gotten there yet, mm-hmm. or public sentiment hasn't gotten there yet, because totally. the contributing factors are are very present. That erosion of trust, right? Very, very present and growing. Um, civil division as a consequence of that, very present and growing, right? And I think these are a lot of the catalysts. I mean, unfortunately, we associate gold, you know, we've talked about this off camera, mm-hmm. we associate gold with chaos and disaster and uncertainty. That's when you turn to gold. Well, those things are ever present right now, right? Um, I don't necessarily, right? I, I buy gold to celebrate a win, actually, right? Um, and I value it in that regard. Um, but the, 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 the trigger points that create the reasons to invest in gold exist. People may not have built the relationship between those events and gold ownership yet, but I feel like it's next. And one reason that I feel like it's next is because suddenly I am seeing mainstream media pundits begin to ask questions about precious metals. Uh, one was a local radio DJ who, who covers pop culture uh, really exclusively and recently had a guest on his show talking about BRICS alternate currencies and why people should pay attention to gold and silver. Now, this is a gentleman who has no background whatsoever, not only in precious metals, but in finance at all. And he's bringing this conversation to the mainstream at a super, super high level, and uh, frankly, I felt like a lot of his points were misguided. But the point is the conversation was happening on as mainstream a platform as could be. And he speaks to a demographic that is probably in their 20s, you know? And that's happening more and more frequently. And so that bridge is being built between I don't understand what's going on, but I am starting to trust my leaders less than I used to. And I don't know where to go next. And I feel like the conversation about where to go next is beginning to surface. And you're absolutely right. And it's interesting because uh, I guess about two months ago, um, Google search by uh, crypto investors, how to buy gold. Right. So right. so this is the beginning of, of a shift, right? And I think what's frustrating for 
you know, people like myself who've been in this, in the sector for a number of years, is so obvious where we think we're going. Mm. And, you know, the value disparity between the gold equities and gold gold price itself. Like, it's hard to believe. If you asked me two years ago, you know, with gold at $2,000 an ounce, where would our stocks be? Yeah. I'm shocked at the lack of interest in our sector still. But again, it goes back to, you know, Silicon Valley happened, what, two months ago? No one even talks about it. It's yeah. amazing how, you know, we're, media is two weeks long, as you know. I mean, it, 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 something comes up and it's forgotten about. Yeah. And, and people just keep on pushing through the same thing. We're in a, we're an instant gratification, social media, um, what's happening today, not looking at the long-term picture. The average investor now has a long, a whole period of three and a half months. Right. So, so there's, they're always moving, always moving. Whereas we're looking at the big picture. Mm-hmm. You know, I look at, we're, I think we're in a, a cycle change here that's going to last for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, and then you get into the fundamentals of, the, of this, of the industry, scarcity of assets. I mean, you know, I think I mentioned to you before that the market cap, the entire gold equity sector globally is less than Home Depot. Right. And yet they mine the, one of the top three reserve currencies in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's shocking. How much of that lack of interest in the equities would you attribute to risk aversion? Because we have seen the gold price hit all-time highs. And some of the most, you could call them secure bets in the equities market, like the wheat and precious metals or the Franco Nevada, they've hit all-time highs mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. But nobody else has, right? Even big producers like Barrick, they're still 30% below their all-time high. And their peers are as well, right? And would you attribute any of that to just maybe the same chaos and uncertainty that typically drives a gold narrative is just that it's creating risk aversion at this point. And I mean, you're speaking to the money managers. So I'm so curious what you're well, saying. I think the, the generous funds like the uh, royalty companies. Yeah. And so they're, 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 because they're, they're protected. From... They're protected. Exactly. So they're more, you know, they're more into, into putting their investment dollars at risk in that part of the sure. sector. Um, with the senior producers, I mean, we've had a lot of disappointments too. You know, cost increases last year. Yep. Gold price went down. Last year was a year when gold stocks should have done very well, and they didn't. And we talked about that before because the U.S. dollar went exponential with interest rates. Um, so there's been a lot of disappointments at a time when gold should have performed. And so now it's building trust, building consistency. I mean, I've got three of my senior companies that give me a three, three and a half percent dividend yield. The S&P gives you a 1.7% dividend yield. Mm. So, you know, these are these are very serious businesses now that have never been in as good a financial shape as they are today. But again, there's just not enough of an audience recognizing it. And that goes back to the narrative. Yes. Keep on, keep on going back to that. But you know, that is such a driving force of attention. And once people actually see that something is changed and they actually believe in it, then everyone wants to follow, follow. To right. be a lone wolf out there when no one else is paying attention, Toughest thing to do, but it's one of the best risk reward positions to be in. And narrative will drive ETF index activity. Absolutely. I'd love you to touch on the significance of ETF and index and index influence in the equities market. Well, I mean, it's so funny. Today, actually, one of my companies I'm involved with, uh, they, I think, they'll probably out now. Uh, they most likely will be put into the Russell 2000. Okay. And so. With that, between now and the end of the month, 31 million shares of buy side will, will go into the stock mm. to position it in the, in, into the Russell 2000. Yes. Which represents about 13% of the number of shares outstanding. Huge. So nothing fundamentally has changed in the company other than the fact it's undervalued in the first place. Okay. But now the indexing 
will drive the price higher. It should drive the price higher. Yeah. And again, ETF weightings too, when you get put into the certain uh, indexes and ETFs, that's an, a kick in buy side. And something, you know, fundamentally may have not shifted, but the stock will perform because of index weighting and ETF weighting. Right. So, Is there any downside to to being involved in an index? Totally. Yeah? Like, you see it all the time. I mean, JNUG, for example, is, is trending down. Anything in that portfolio gets spun out. So you can be doing everything right. Your stock's down 10 15% because the index is taking you down. Because you're in the index and there's some bad actor in the index. Yeah, or just, just the liquidation of, of that trade. Right. Right? Right. You know, going into quarter ends, we see that all the time. Okay. Quarter ends up, quarter ends down, repositioning. And so it, you could be doing everything right and your stock can be going down. And it's, a, it's a, one of the frustrating positions of running a public company where so much of the volume is indexed. Yeah. Now, would you advise investors to be looking for companies that would be good candidates oh, totally. for index qualification? Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, that's one of the things, that, you know, again, going back to this panel I was on, you know, fund managers, quarterly performance, right? I have no quarterly performance for my clients. I deal with high net worth, right? And so I see great opportunities that come along that no one's paying attention to. I can act upon those great opportunities, recognizing as the companies get validated for their asset values, then they get indexed mm -hmm. and then liquidity comes in. And that's been involved, that's happened with a number of my companies. So I have a competitive advantage because I can go in and, and buy these companies before the indexes because they have to get to a certain market cap or liquidity event before the indexes can take them. Yes. So it, it, it can, you can actually do very well, but key thing is finding great assets. Okay, I want you to walk me through your decision-making process a little bit because you know, I don't know how many deals you look at, at an annual, on an annual basis. I know the number's high. Mm -hmm. I know the number of companies you actually get involved with is low, and you go all in on the companies that you're involved with. So walk me through your criteria, your decision-making process when you're valuing an asset. There's a lot of great companies out there that I really, really like. Okay. But I'll touch them a year from now because they're caught in a development stage or a permitting stage. So in that quiet stage of development. Okay. So I don't want to disingenuous to those companies. Sure. You have to look at where the company's growth trajectory is. You know, buying a company that's going to go into production and it's going to produce 70,000 ounces of gold for 10 years and that's it. There's no upside in that. Mm. You have to have growth of a, and, and unlocking of value events to stimulate investor demand. Yes. So if you're a 150,000 ounce producer going to 300,000 ounce and you want to build a mid-tier, and go to a half million ounce production, those are the type of companies I like to look at because independent of gold price, you have a lot of events that can unlock value to outperform the sector. Yeah. I'm looking for the companies that are gonna be the tier one growth companies in the sector. You know, grassroots exploration, um, I don't do that. I wait for the discoveries. Yeah. And then, you know, I have an advantage because I have our Canaccord Metals and Mining team as my partners. And so when something great comes along, we have all our tentacles out looking at things. Plus, I also have probably 40 clients who are geos engineers in the mining industry. So I've got a huge uh, inventory of people to tap information from. Mm -hmm. So I'll just, a lot of times I'll just be patient, keep myself dialed in and look for opportunities when they come along. And, uh, and it's, patience is a big thing. How do you factor in geopolitical risk? As I said to a client the other day, What's below the ground is one thing. What's above the ground is everything. 
because if it's above the ground, you can't, if you run into, you know, permitting issues, geopolitical issues, the value under the ground is zero. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I've operated, we had a project we were involved with in Haiti. And uh, I got Newmont to donate money to the Clinton Foundation years ago, trying to unlock the mining convention. And we were one signature away from getting the mining convention signed. And if we had, then we, it would have, you know, basically unlocked the opportunities of the country. And I don't know if you know, know much about Haiti, but Haiti and Dominican Republic are one island. Yeah. Barrick's, one of Barrick's biggest asset, million ounce producer, is in Dominican Republic. But without a mining convention, you have no rights for legal extraction. And so Newmont was joint venture with this company, and they had spent $35 million doing all the groundwork, all the trenching, and identified four targets, 50% probability of five million ounce plus deposits okay. without a drill hole, because they, they didn't want to drill until they had the mining convention. We got down to the last signature, and then the corruption hands came out again. And now I wouldn't go there, of course, with what's going on with the, you know, with this um, execution of the uh, or the assassination of the president. And that. But there's, you know, there was a situation that could have potentially been so great, mm -hmm. and we were fortunate enough to get out of that one before it got nasty. Right. So and so you have to be aware of what's above the ground, and it's. Uh, it, but again, as I say that, I'm involved in West Africa. A lot of noise in West Africa. But if you go to West Africa, the largest mining district on the planet, mines can be built on time, on budget. And uh, you, you look at the uh, Burkina Faso's had nine new mines built in the last four years. Yes. On time, on budget. Remarkably favorable. Yeah. Whereas you look at Canada, you know, yeah. it's, are they on time, on budget? No. Yeah. I mean, I was involved with Sabina and we had a year delay because of caribou politics, right? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it's geopolitical, I mean, permitting in Nevada, five years. Well, that's a really good perspective because when people think geopolitical risk, they often think of um you know wars conflicts civil wars sure nationalization all of this and they may make the assumption especially if they're new to the commodity sector that you know a country like canada being a developed country right it's safe predictable right sound uh judicial system you could you could argue but it's impossible to get work done as a consequence mm. right not impossible not impossible it's a lot harder than a country like Burkina Faso, just to use an example. Labor costs, that, labor pools, yes, all that kind of stuff. Exactly, right? exactly. So there's just concessions, right? Maybe you could say Burkina Faso, maybe the government's a bit less predictable, but what's the track record of getting permits? Well, it's really, really good, right? Okay. Um, my audience always asks me for M&A predictions and forecasts. I hinted to you that I was going to ask you for one, and you asked me a question in response, essentially. Well, you didn't answer directly, but you gave me a very thoughtful response. And you said, look, it's not what we want right now. Mm -hmm. Let me explain. Mm -hmm. I'd love to have you elaborate on your perspective on M&A in the sector right now. Well, it's not what we want right now. Because okay. the value disparity between the big caps and the developers or small producers um, is extreme. I mean, we're looking at a lot of these developers and trading at 0.2 times now. And so 0.2 times net asset value, um, uh, given, um, say 1850 gold price. Whereas you got a Newmont or a Barrick and some of the other uh, senior producers trading at 0.9 times, 1.1 times NAV. So they have a valuation where it's very accretive for them to buy assets. It's in their favor, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. But I don't want the starting of, the, of this process at 0.2 times NAV. I think, you know, when we get up to 0 0.6, 0 0.7, 0 0.8 times NAV, then we'll, we'll entertain that. You know, we have some very big positions in a number of companies and we're against 
M and A at this point because we're just too cheap. Right. And 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 quite honestly, I don't see it really happening aggressively until the narrative towards the sector gets to the point where the pressure in the boardrooms of the mining companies to grow is in place. So, for example, if you're a senior mining company and you're delivering dividends and you know profitability and and uh, right now, but all of a sudden gold price goes up by two, three hundred dollars. Now the shareholders start saying, "Well, what are you doing for growth?" Yeah. So now there's tension in the boardroom, mm-hmm. and we have no real tension in the boardroom. And because uh, once the tension happens, then people start looking around. They're going to realize scarcity of assets, and that's one of the most important things about our sector right now. Is there's so few assets to fill the 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 replenishing of gold mining each year or growth for the mid tiers of seniors. And uh, it's a sweet spot. And the last cycle, I was involved with eight companies that were taken over. And uh, my my opinion right now, along with some other people who are very close to me in the business, we don't even want to start happening right now because it's just too early. We won't get value. Right. And given the stage of companies that you're looking at, I mean, you spoke about, I love how, you know, you mentioned you want to be able to uh, visibly see those value unlocking catalysts in the company's future. And you mentioned, say, a company is producing 150,000 ounces. You want to see their path to 300, et cetera. If you're sitting in that bucket, that stage of a company, you're right. The equity, that equity has gotten no love right now from the market. And so, um, if you can afford to, right, hold on and, and push away the suitors, right? Um, Having said that, do you would you expect some distressed companies to be scooped up in this market who can't afford to play the waiting game, who maybe can't go back to the market for capital, but their assets reasonable enough to be considered by a major? Distressed. What do you mean by distressed? Companies that can't raise capital at this part? Correct. I, I don't see them being in the takeover arena because there's a reason why they can't raise money, right? Yeah, good answer. I mean, you can buy... You can buy some great companies right now that aren't getting valued in the marketplace. Again, going back to seniors and mid-tiers, they're getting indexed, they're getting re-rated. But there's that big gap between those and some of the developers because there's no money flows coming into the space. So the money hasn't come down into those yet. Yeah. And that's the gap I'm talking about. And that's why you know we don't want any M&A happening right now because we look at the value of these companies and the starting point is just too low. Because there's a there's a void narrative of investors coming in and recognizing the discrepancy between these companies and these companies. Yeah, that's one reason why I'm you know, having these interviews because I'm trying to make the market more aware about the value proposition of the sector. Mm-hmm. There's some significant gains to be made in our sector right now, and no one's paying attention. I love it, yeah. Cam. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah. I appreciate coming back on. Well, Jay, thank you very much for your time. Anytime. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.